Welcome to the Faith Connections Podcast, a partnership between the Foundry Publishing, Nazarene Discipleship International, and Holiness Today. Welcome to our study this week of Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. My name is Scott Rainey. I serve with the Church of the Nazarene in the area of Nazarene Discipleship International, or NDI. This adult Sunday school video lesson is provided in collaboration between the Foundry Publishing and NDI. The Sunday school lesson is intended to support the local church's efforts to make disciples who make disciples. Please feel free to use this video in any way that helps your church or its families. Today, we start a four-week study of the New Testament letter to the Colossians. As stated in Colossians chapter 1, verse 1, the letter was written by the Apostle Paul and Timothy. Typically, Paul's letters were pastoral letters to Christian communities that he had personally founded, like Corinth, Philippi, and Thessalonica. He knew people from these early churches, and his letters probably seemed like writing old friends or even family. The letter to the Romans was a little unusual because Paul did not plant the church in Rome, but the letter was written to prepare the Roman churches for Paul's planned visit. The letter of our study this Advent season is unique because Paul never visited Colossae, and there was no evidence to suggest that he ever planned to. Although Paul was not known personally to the Colossians, Timothy was. The letter has some characteristics that are not typical of Paul's letters. So some scholars have suggested that Timothy may have been the primary author. If that is the case, it would be much like a professional assistant today who drafts a letter for his or her boss. The boss then reads a letter, makes a few adjustments, and signs the letter the final verse of this letter, that is Colossians chapter 4, verse 18, supports this kind of idea. Colossae was a prosperous city in ancient Asia Minor, or modern-day Western Turkey. The city was a few hundred miles away from the coastal city of Ephesus, where Paul spent a great deal of his time. History tells us that Colossae suffered a devastating earthquake in AD 60, and never was fully rebuilt. The setting of this letter, therefore, must have been before such a catastrophic event. The very first word of this letter is a name, Paul. Paul's name should not be passed over quickly. Behind his name is a story, a story that we cannot forget as we read the rest of his letter. Paul, of course, started his life with the name Saul. Saul was a Pharisee who, prior to his conversion, led in the persecution of early disciples of Jesus following Jesus' death and resurrection. Sometime after the execution of Stephen, which Saul approved, he was confronted by the living, resurrected Jesus on the road to Damascus. As a result of his encounter with Jesus, Saul's life was radically transformed by the grace of God in Christ. Saul became a new creation in Jesus and later received a new name, Paul. He became God's missionary to the Gentile world and was widely considered an apostle 
in the early church. This was the Paul whose name is attached to the letter to the church in Colossae. Let's then begin by reading in Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. Paul, an apostle of Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God, our father. We always thank God, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all of God's people the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as, as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you might have great endurance and patience and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Our passage for this week begins with a noteworthy greeting. The form of this introductory greeting is a very typical is very typical for uh, Pauline letters. We learn who the letter is from, that is Paul and Timothy, who the letter is addressed to, God's holy people in Colossae. Finally, we have a, a wish for well-being, grace, and peace to you. Let's take a closer look, however, at the details found in the greeting. In some of Paul's letters, he identifies himself as a servant. Philippians chapter one, verse one is an example. Sometimes he doesn't give a title to himself. First and second Thessalonians are good examples. Here in this letter to the church in Colossae, he calls himself an apostle. This title may have been included because these readers had not yet met Paul and did not already have a strong relationship with him like some of the other churches. Paul was insistent that the calling to apostleship was limited to a very small group of people within the early church. 
in Paul's understanding, no one could be an apostle unless they had been directly called to apostleship by Christ and had seen the risen Christ in person. He considered his encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus, both his calling and his seeing of the resurrected Christ. While Paul is titled apostle in verse one, Timothy receives the title brother. Familial language is very common in the New Testament. The language of brothers uh, and sisters uh, who are believers comes from the idea that believers have all been adopted by the same father that is God. Paul considered all believers to be holy. The primary meaning of sanctification and holiness language in the Old Testament was to set something or someone apart. God had and still does set apart all those who by faith believe on Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. But I don't want to move on too quickly here. It's important for us to acknowledge that God begins his sanctifying work, that is to be set apart or to make holy, at the moment of salvation. In the Church of the Nazarene, we call this initial sanctification. God does not wait to make people holy until they are entirely sanctified. At times, I sense that people want to talk about Jesus becoming their Savior at repentance and their Lord at entire sanctification. That is theological nonsense. When someone is saved by the grace of God, he or she must acknowledge Jesus as both Savior and Lord of his or her life from day one. Every believer is called and enabled to be holy by the grace of God in Christ. 1 John chapter 3, verse 6 reminds us, no one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Entire sanctification is not the is not the moment when people are encouraged to stop sinning. Repentance and salvation address the acts of sin and the lifestyle of a sinner. When Wesley and holiness people speak of entire sanctification, we're speaking about the act of God following salvation where believers are set free from original sin and brought into a state of entire devotion to God. It is his work. That is why we call it grace. It's made possible by the blood of Jesus, just like salvation. And in one moment of time, believers experience the cleansing of the heart from sin and the abiding indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, empowering the believer for life and service. The important thing for Colossians chapter one is to understand that believers are made holy by the power and grace of God. The spiritual blessing or wish by Paul is for grace and peace. Notice that both grace and peace come as a gift from God to the people of God. Verse two says, grace and peace to you from God our Father. So Paul certainly believed that God's grace is from first to last. His grace awakens us to the, to the knowledge that we even need God. 
His grace woos us to him. We call this prevenient grace, the grace that goes before. God's grace empowers us to turn to him in repentance and faith. We call this saving grace. And God's grace sanctifies the believer, making his children more like Jesus. We call this sanctifying grace. All is possible by God's grace from first to last. In addition to grace, God's hope for all creation is his peace. There is a human peace that we can create here on earth, but it is shallow and temporary. But there is a peace of God that transcends all understanding, according to Philippians 4, 7, that remains ours when the storms of life rage around us. This kind of peace is a gift of God from the Prince of Peace, Jesus. It is like an anchor for our souls, and it lasts. It is interesting to note that in Colossians chapter 1, verse 2, the holy people of God are said to be in Colossae and in Christ. You see, the believers today have our temporary homes on earth where there is at times chaos, conflict, and pain that are the result of sin. However, in the midst of such chaos, it is possible to live in the kingdom of God, enjoying his peace that is ultimately found only in Christ. Paul's letter moves from his introduction to a gracious thanksgiving. The thanksgiving in Colossians chapter 1 verses 3 through 8 expresses Paul's gratitude for the Colossian believers. These six verses actually comprise one long sentence in the original Greek text, and it is filled with key words and theology that we could focus on for weeks. Let me just highlight a few things here today. First, notice that Paul's thanksgiving sprung from a report that was given to him about the people of God in Colossae. Colossians chapter 1 verse 4 says that they thank God because we have heard of your faith and your love. Our commentator for today's lesson says that he would like to translate verse 4 with the words, rumor has it that you have faith and love. Paul's ancient social networks were apparently eager to spread good news. The rumor mill was spreading news of positive developments in the lives of these young believers. Good reports must have brought deep thankfulness to Paul and his fellow companions. A week ago, I traveled to Houston, Texas, where I used to pastor in order to attend a wedding of a close family friend. While I was there, I had a, the chance to share coffee and a conversation with another dear brother who, after eight years of witnessing to him when we lived in Houston, came to put his trust in Jesus soon after my family moved to Ukraine to serve as missionaries in 2012. Can you imagine my joy to see my friend in church now 10 years later growing in Christ? We shed tears of thankfulness together to God as we sipped on coffee that Monday morning in Houston a week ago. There are few things in life 
that cause a heart to overflow in thankfulness to God, like seeing a loved one follow Jesus. Ask a Christian parent if you doubt me on that one. The report that had come to Paul and Timothy had come from a man named Epaphras, verse 7. Unfortunately, today, we don't know much about Epaphras. Some have suggested that he could have been the believer who planted the church in Colossae. There are two other references in scripture to Epaphras. One is in Philemon chapter 1, verse 23, where Epaphras was said to be a fellow prisoner with Paul. A second reference is in Philippians chapter 2, verse 25, where Paul mentions a man named Epaphroditus, a Latin name that's equivalent to the Greek name Epaphras. In both of these cases, we can, we can be sure, we cannot be sure of a direct link to the Epaphras in Colossae. In any case, Epaphras was giving Paul and his team a positive report about the Colossian church. The report given by Epaphras spoke of the faith, love, and hope of the believers in Colossae, according to verse 5. These three topics, faith, hope, and love, permeate Paul's letters, often appearing closely together in the text. Faith, hope, and love truly represent God's activity in this world. You see, God is faithful. God shows faithfulness to his people by remaining true to the promises God has made. His faithfulness, however, enables a human response. You see, we are called to reflect God's faithfulness by putting our trust, and indeed our very lives, under the authority of God. But God is also love. For Paul, love is not an emotion or a feeling, but an action. It is God's very love that sent Jesus to this world and made salvation possible. And as the example of faith, believers are to reflect this activity of God and his love in our lives. Love for one another is the visible mark of a community that has been redeemed and transformed by God's love in Christ Jesus. Finally, God is hope. God acts in hope, not as an idle or wistful wishing for better things to come, but in the firm resolve and conviction to redeem and restore. Although the definition of hope has a future dimension, the description of hope stored up for you in heaven from Colossians chapter 1 verse 5 suggests hope to be an assured reality for the present, not merely a vague wish for the future. When Christians hope, they have hope in God's saving and redeeming activity. The hope of salvation is already secure in heaven because the exalted Christ has completed his work. When the church is characterized by faith, hope, and love, it is a sign of and a witness to God's activity among the community. Paul's thankfulness comes to a crescendo 
in the fruit-bearing and growing nature of the gospel around the world, verse 6. The spread of the church is a direct result of the powerful work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of redeemed sinners. By the power of God and by his grace, lives are truly transformed, set apart, and made holy. The gospel, we might say, takes hold and the world takes notice. Therefore, every person in the world is a candidate for hearing and responding to the gospel, and the church grows around the world. For this, we, like Paul, are thankful. Our passage for this week ends with a sincere prayer by Paul. Paul believed in, in the power and effectiveness of prayer. Having heard of a new Christian community in a town that he had never visited, his response was predictable. He never stopped praying for them. Verse 9, Paul believed that the church's primary battle was spiritual, and its primary weapon was prayer. As I conclude today, I want to list out the seven specific things Paul prayed for in the church in Colossae. Paul prayed, first, that they would be filled with the knowledge of his will. Second, that they would live a life worthy of the, of the Lord. Third, that they would please God in every way. Fourth, that they would bear fruit in every good work. Fifth, that they would grow in the knowledge of God. Sixth, that they would be strengthened with all power so that they might have endurance and patience. And seventh, that they would give joyful thanks to the Father. What a list. What a prayer. Lord, may faith, love, and hope overflow in our lives so that the world may see you, that your kingdom might increase, and that you might be praised forevermore. Thank you for listening to the Faith Connections podcast. If you wish to order Faith Connection materials for your local church, please visit thefoundrypublishing.com. If you've enjoyed this production and wish to hear more, visit holinesstoday.org slash podcast or find us on Spotify, Apple, and Google Podcasts.